Hi, this is Malayan Verveer. And this is Kim Azzarelli. We are co-authors of the book, Fast Forward, How Women Can Achieve Power and Purpose. And you're listening to Seneca Women, Conversations on Power and Purpose, a podcast brought to you by Seneca Women. Mary Robinson shows what happens when women lead. She made history when she was elected the first woman president of Ireland. She's also served as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, as well as the Special Envoy of the UN Secretary General for Climate Change. And today, she continues to use her power for purpose as a leading advocate for climate justice. Mary sat down with Milan at the 2017 Seneca Women Forum at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the conversation is just as relevant today. Listen to why climate change is a woman's issue, why women's leadership is crucial to creating the world we want to see, and what every one of us can do to help all women succeed. Enjoy our conversation and stick around for our top takeaways. President Mary Robinson, the first woman president of Ireland. (laughs) So Mary, you not only were president of your country, you were the high UN commissioner for human rights, You are currently the UN Special Envoy for Climate. This has been a very busy time for Mary here in New York. You were the recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And if I go on and on, as I surely could, we wouldn't have much of a conversation. So I will uh, go to a subject that I think is much on our mind today and one in which you are an extraordinary leader, and that's climate change. We have been horrified by the power and force of the recent hurricanes and the Mm. destruction that lay in the wake of them, the catastrophic firestorms and droughts that are cropping up in places that never experienced that. And I think many of us are very, very concerned Mm. about, are we doing enough? Mm. What could we be doing? What should we be doing? You have been involved in this issue for many, many years now. And maybe we could start this conversation about how you began. Where did it start with you, and how did you become involved in it? Well, Milan, it's nice of you to say many, many years, but actually I'm a relative newcomer. I served as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights for five years from 1997 to 2002, and I never made any significant speech on climate because it was being dealt with by another part of the UN. We were in silos. And it was only after my term as High Commissioner, I established a small organization here in New York called Realizing Rights to work on economic and social rights in African countries. I had colleagues at the Aspen Institute in Washington, I had colleagues in Geneva, a small number, but we were working on right to health, right to food. And I was also Honorary President of Oxfam, so Oxfam were wheeling me out as well around Africa. And... From 2002 to 2008, I kept hearing this constant phrase, things are so much worse. And the worse was, we don't know when to sow, we don't know when to harvest, we, ha- we, we sow and then the, the rainy season doesn't come, or we get monsoon rains when we shouldn't, and flash flooding, and then long periods of drought, and all over Africa. And this was way before, in the developed world, we fully realized that climate change wasn't something of the future. It was now. And I remember being, before Copenhagen, um, Oxfam organized these hearings with climate witnesses, if you like. Mm -hmm. And I was on a jury with my dear friend, Archbishop Tutu. And we had five African farmers talking to us. And I saw that 
Tutu was getting very depressed at their very real stories of how bad it was in different parts of Africa. And I said, well, look, I come from the west of Ireland. My father was a doctor, and he used to bring me out on long medical calls because I was the only girl wedged between four brothers. That's how I got interested in human rights and gender and all that. But, um, but um, you know, we would meet the farming community, and inevitably, whatever the weather, the farmers would complain. So I said to these five African farmers, you know, is this just a little bit worse, but, you know, are you just complaining like farmers do? And I remember Constance O'Kellett, who became a friend afterwards from northern Uganda, rising, tall woman, rising to her full height and saying in a very deliberate voice, this is outside our experience. Mm. And it was a very telling phrase because the experience in a small village is probably 150 years. If you count grandparents talking to grandchildren, talking to their children, you know, it's a, there's a long experience. And this was outside their experience. And it has become worse. And we now see the devastation, as you say, in the Caribbean. So one of the things you have really focused on uh, in this process, uh, besides the justice component, which is incredibly important, is women's leadership yes. in climate. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. more about what we can be doing, what we should be doing? Well, I established a foundation on climate justice because I could see the injustice of climate change, the disproportionate impact on poor countries and poor communities and rich countries. The poor communities that were hit by Katrina, that were hit by Sandy, that took much longer to recover, that have been hit now in Florida and in Texas and all the more so in Puerto Rico and um, the uh, U.S., uh, Virgin Islands and the rest of the, of the Caribbean. And who's picking up the pieces? That's what I learned. Uh, who puts food on the table? Who has to go further in drought for water? Um, who forms a women's group to try and make her community resilient? That's happening all over the world. Women are becoming the frontline defenders of their communities mm -hmm. in the context of climate change. And what we decided in Cancun the um, conference on climate just after Copenhagen. Copenhagen was regarded as a sort of failure. It, it was just saved from being a failure by an accord, but it wasn't within the UN system. To their great credit, Mexico in Cancun brought it back into the UN system and started the road, the long road to Paris um, of several conferences. And in um, Cancun, we realized that three women had presided over conferences. Um, Connie Hedegaard had presided at Copenhagen in Denmark, um, might, um, Patricia Espinosa um, was going to preside, or was in the process of presiding in Cancun, and Mighty Mashaban would have the next one in Durban. And we, they, it was actually Patricia Espinosa who said, why don't we form a troika of women leaders and make it women ministers, women heads of agencies, and we decided to have a few male ministers, but we'd keep men decidedly in their place, you know, <laughs> a, a minority, a supportive minority, which they should be. And, um, <laughs> and it's become a very real... Um, focal point within the, the system of these annual climate conferences, the most important of which, of course, was Paris. And we've met before these, and we've planned, and because these are women ministers, they're at the table, and women heads of agencies, they know how to move that agenda. And we've just had a meeting here that you were at. We meet at 7 in the morning, key to getting busy I people. I can attest to that, yeah. 7 a.m. 7 in the morning, out by about 8.30, and it's very good. Um, people turn up, we get our business done, and then they go off to do their, their other business. And we have managed to get gender parity as a principle in the COP. We're now working on a gender action plan. And why is it important? For the reasons that I was giving. It is just so starkly evident that when you undermine poor livelihoods, 
it is women who literally have to pick up the pieces. So the troika of women leaders at the ministerial heads of agency level are now focusing on getting grassroots women in at the table so they can tell their stories. Because a lot of the climate discussions become very technical and very abstract. And if you don't have the real human story there, people don't understand. And we've been successful in bringing that story more and more. And I would love to see it really part of the actual um, gender um, way of going forward. That, so you know, it's a, a women's issue as much as any other women's and issue. And the stories that women can tell as frontline <laughs> defenders are really um, impactful. They, they change the dynamic. So from climate to high-level political leadership, this is one of the areas women succeeding at the highest levels in politics, including parliaments, including uh, so many other uh, critical positions. It's the most difficult place for us still. It's where we've made the least progress. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense of how we can accelerate things a little bit? Well, I can certainly share what was my feeling when I was elected president of Ireland. Um, I felt it was so important to do it proudly as a woman, an advantage to be a woman, that I drew on the strengths. Now, the presidency in Ireland is not like here in the United States or in many other countries. It's um, an ex a non-executive presidency. So it's actually a more subtle form of power. It's a moral leadership, because the real political power is with the prime minister, whom we call the Taoiseach, and the government, the cabinet government. But the president has real powers under the constitution, and most importantly, is, is directly elected by the people. And that is what I found so interesting and so intriguing and worthwhile. And I, I found it really important to understand the importance of symbols. Um, I said on the night of my election, and all the incredible excitement because I was going against the odds, there were odds of 100 to 1 against me winning, and I didn't even back myself, you know. But, um, <laughs> but um, on that night, I said that I would put a light in the window of my official residence for all of those who had to emigrate from Ireland over the years and over the decades. That light took on a life of its own. It was in the kitchen. You could see it from the public road. And it somehow helped to shape an Irish identity, helped us to build a peace process and understand that we had to be open to the other, open more. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, 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 was a, and it, it was very good for me because when I became High Commissioner for Human Rights, it was a harder role. It was a more... Um, role of um, being in some way responsible for leadership on human rights around the world, but I had no big stick. I had no enforcement. I could only use the moral voice. And so that well, was a continuation of that. you've successfully done yeah. that, to be but, sure. But I, I do believe that you know, women in leadership is changing, for example, Africa particularly. I mean, I'm seeing women really taking leadership positions. Unfortunately, not enough at the um, presidential level. When Ellen Johnson Sirleaf steps down, there'll be no woman president in Africa. There'll be two vice presidents in the whole continent of 54 countries. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do, but there are a lot of women ministers. There is a lot of sense. Grassa Michelle, who's a fellow elder with me, the elders that Nelson Mandela brought together, she is a powerful voice for women, leader, women's leadership of an economic sense as well. And I think women in the business community can do a lot more. Well, I'm glad you touched on the business community and... Unfortunately, the clock is, is going very quickly here, and I uh, wanted to ask you if there were, was one bit of advice you could give us for how we could fast forward, and maybe you could get business into your answer as well. <laughs> uh, what would that be? What could we take away? I think it's something that we all know. Women need mentoring. 
young women need mentoring. Women in the workplace need mentoring. So look, you're a very um, amazing group of women leaders here in the audience. Each of you should be mentoring. Many of you probably are mentoring. I know, you know women like Mindy Lover has done a huge amount for climate and is a great leader of women. The networking is also part of that. And we saw in the clip earlier the importance of the support group. But you know, even if you go out of here today and say, I'm going to actually be more alert to one or two women in my workplace, in my um, uh, enterprise, in my um, whatever it is, and just uh, you know, give them that support. Men don't mentor in a vocal way, but you watch you know, when there's um, um, you know, a male boss. The young men come in and they become like their male boss, and the male boss notices them more than the young women in his... You know, it's, a, it's a kind of inherent mentoring. They don't have to talk about it because they're men. But we have, to, <laughs> we have to find a way very strongly to redress the patriarchy, to redress the misogyny, which is here in society. It's an underlying reality of power. And to change that, we have to be more supportive of each other and more supportive of mentoring young women. So please do that, because that will make a difference. <laughs> okay. And I think that's a great point to end on because we're going to talk some more about how we mm. need to change that narrative and that paradigm. Mm. Uh, so, Mary, thank you for this, for all that you do. Heed her advice. You'll never go wrong, and we truly <laughs> will make a difference together. And I can be bossy in my old age, you know? <laughs>